You guys can have a seat, except for Tierra and Ashley, because they're part of my opening sermon illustration this morning. Um, as I mentioned a little bit ago, if you got your Bibles open, open to the book of James uh, towards the end of the New Testament, for those of you that don't know, we are uh, reading through the New Testament as a church this year, just one chapter a day, five days a week will get us through the entire New Testament exactly one year. For those that choose to, we're also kind of uh, studying every chapter and journaling through it, asking some specific questions of each one. And uh, I've done this a couple times since we started doing this around the beginning of the year, but today, again, I'm just going to do kind of a flyover of the book of James um, because I just couldn't choose one, uh, one passage or one chapter to look at. But I very quickly want to just jump into the big idea of the entire book, mainly so that Tierra and Ashley don't feel weird standing up there um, forever, and then we'll let them sit down. But it is that, ver- those verses that I just read, the beginning of James chapter 1, says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, perfect, and complete, lacking nothing. How many of you would like to be perfect and complete? Lacking nothing, yeah? Well, here's the idea. Again, it's not sinless perfection. The Greek word is teleos. And it's the idea of being whole or aligned or congruent, that what's on the inside matches what's on the outside, and what's on the outside matches what's what's on the inside. Another word for it, just kind of switching more to a musical term, would be the idea of harmony that we know when things are in tune and when they're in harmony that it sounds good. And James wants our lives, all of our life, every area of it, to be in harmony. He wants our lives to be a song, continual worship to the Lord, not just in what we say, but in the things that we do. And so, if you guys could here, just sing a little something here and then Ashley come in and harmonize, okay? Go, go ahead. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That's good. Well, that sounded good. Okay. Did you hear the harmony? So it's Chair singing one part, Ashley singing another. They're not singing the same part, They're singing a little bit different. But now let me show you what harmony doesn't sound like. This is where I come in. <laughs> Go ahead. Do the same thing again. <laughs> How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Like me. I want. Okay, I'll stop. It's good. Thank you, guys. You can have a seat. So harmony, not harmony. Teleos, not teleos. And what James does throughout the letter, it's actually quite brilliant. He doesn't write in the same way Paul does, where Paul is very much, he gives truth, and then he breaks up his letters, usually just what is true and then what to do. They're usually very clean. But James comes out, and James is a little bit like, you know who Simon Cowell is? American Idol, X Factor, you know, he's one of those, those harsh judges. James, not trying in any way to be disrespectful to James here, okay? I'm going to see him in heaven and Good, but um, James is kind of like the Simon Cowell of biblical authors. 
is he comes out and he gives some real straightforward critique, and he uses extremely colorful language to do so. And he does not hold back in what is true, but, but, here's, but here's his heart. And again, I don't know what... Simon Cowell thinks his opinions are inspired. James' opinions actually are inspired, okay? Um, but his goal is that he wants our lives to be in harmony. He wants our lives to sound well. And this idea of, 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 of teleos, of being, of being whole, of being in harmony in every area of our life, that is, that is the image that he holds up of a mature disciple, that this is what discipleship looks like, is that in every area of your life, that it's in harmony with the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Again, you could give many de- different definitions of discipleship, but one of them, one of the most basic ones that's always good to come back to, is that discipleship is simply the process of bringing every area of life under the Lordship of Christ. And that James, I believe, is telling us that even in that process that there's great joy. What's interesting about James is, this is just to give a little background, this is um, not James, uh, one of the 12, but this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. The half-brother of Jesus, okay? And he starts off in James chapter 1, verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I have four boys, okay? They are brothers. Um, this gets overlooked a lot of times, and I'm not saying it's an open and shut case, but one of the things that points to the fact that I believe that Jesus really was God, that he really did rise from the dead, is that his brother his half-brother calls him Lord. Because I got four boys, I'm telling you right now, there ain't no way any one of them is ever calling the other one Lord, okay? Unless it's true, unless it's true. But this is James, the, one of the sons of Mary and Joseph, Jesus', Jesus half-brother. And so what I wanna do this morning is just kinda fly, I don't wanna say fly through, but walk through the text. Obviously, I'm not gonna hit everything, but give kind of a survey of the entire book and talk about some specific areas that James points out where our lives are sometimes, many times, not in harmony. And he wants to bring them into harmony. He wants to bring them into teleos so that they're beautiful and that our lives, all of life, uh, is a constant uh, just song of praise and worship to the Father with the way that we live. The first thing is this, is that he wants there to be harmony or wholeness in our belief that God is always good. He wants there to be harmony and wholeness in our belief that God is always good. This is what he starts off with right, right out of the chute. Again, something very practical, but, but again, ultimately talking about the nature and character of God, which is what all of the scripture is about. I know I've read it already, but jump in with verse 2 of chapter 1 with me again. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously. It's pointing out here something about the nature and character of God, that God is a generous giver. What is God always willing, willing to give? He gives generously to all Uh, to all without reproach and it will be given to him but let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that driven and tossed by the wind again there's imagery here that is kind of the opposite of harmony the opposite of what it means to be whole verse 7 for the person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord for he is a double-minded man everybody say double-minded Double-minded. This is, again, this is the opposite of wholeness. This is the opposite of teleos, the opposite of harmony. 
that were double-minded. And mainly what James is talking about here is that when trials hit our lives, we say that God is good when everything is going well. We say that God is good when everything's okay. We say that, that God is good when, you know, everything that's happening in our life is going the way that we want it to happen. But he says that we're double-minded because then all of a sudden something painful hits our lives and all of a sudden we begin to doubt the goodness of God. And James says that's not teleos, that's not harmony. God is good absolutely, positively, all the time. And the problem is that when pain hits our lives, we are double-minded. And we waffle between whether or not God is good. <coughs> James says, verse 8, if we're like this, we are double-minded men, unstable in all of our ways. Now, jump ahead here a little bit. Again, it's, it's an argument, but James is continuing this in this line of thought that God, that God is always good. Jump over to verse 12. It says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. He's saying God is good. He promises you, you have to endure. He's doing something, and there's a reward for you at the end. Verse 13, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Many times when pain comes into our lives, the thing that we begin to doubt is in the goodness of God, and we may actually begin to think that God is against us. We might actually begin to think that God is somehow tempting us. And, and James is, is addressing, again, like a, like a master surgeon of our soul, um, he, he's very much addressing this issue that I'm sure that we've all faced. That when everything's going well, we say, praise God, isn't he good? And we thank him for it, and we mean it. But when things get difficult, we think that he's somehow against us. That is never the case. It's never the case. If you are in Christ Jesus, it is never the case. Everything in your life, he is working together for good. Can we always connect the dots? Can we always explain it? Is there a devil that prowls around like a roaring lion and he's seeking someone to devour and he brings pain into our life? Yes. But God is over it all. And if you are in Christ, nothing gets to your life without first going through the hand of God. That he allows it. God is good all the time. He tempts no one with evil. Verse 14, but each person is tempted when, he's lured, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. James, I'll tell you where sin comes from. It comes from our hearts. Verse 15, then desire, when it is it's conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect, and that word perfect, there is again this word teleos. Every whole, every harmonious gift, every good and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights. Listen, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He is always good. He is always shining. And this time, you know, this is easy for us to get. The sun is always there. Clouds come and go. Sometimes it's grayer. Sometimes we wonder if the sun is still there. It's always there. It's always there. It's consistent. It's steady. There is no variation or shadow due to change. God always intends good things. For his people. He does not change because he does not need to. God is not double-minded. God is the antithesis or the opposite of double-mindedness. He is always steady. He is always faithful. Do you believe that this morning? So before we get to any other practical area of our life that James is going to get to, to see whether or not there's harmony there. 
you got to start here. And some of you this morning, it, listen, it, this is, it, it's not a magic formula. If you go back to verse 2 of chapter 1 when he says, count it all joy, it's, that, 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 that's a verb, it's an action word. But it's something that not just outwardly, but, but inwardly, it's a decision that we have to make in our hearts. Again, that's why I like that song. That I choose to praise, to glorify, to glorify the name of all names. Is you have to settle this. You've got to settle this in your heart. That God is good and he's not going to change his mind about you. He's faithful. And then verse 18, James is just kind of proof that God is good. Or if you're doubting that God is good, verse 18. Of his own will, and this is speaking of something that God did. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That if you doubt whether, if, you, if you're a Christian, you doubt whether or not God is good, you need to remember this. He saved you. <laughs> he brought you forth by his own will. If you're here this morning, you don't know if you know Jesus as your Savior. You don't know if the Spirit of God lives in you. You don't know where you would go when you die, I want to tell you that God is good. And he asks you to trust him. You know, guys, a double-minded God would not send his son to die. Amen? He wouldn't. And can you imagine the opportunity that God has to be double-minded about us? <laughs> right? We mess up. I'm sorry, God, I won't ever do that again. I'm sorry, oh, we mess up. I'm sorry, God, I won't ever do that again. And we do that over and over and over and over and over. But he does not change his mind in his intention to be good to us. So, first thing that James wants there to be harmony in our life, it, it starts with an area of belief in our hearts that, uh, that we would not be double-minded, but single-minded. That we would have harmony in our belief that God is good, whether things are going well or things are going bad and God is not double-minded secondly and you see this in several different places that there would be harmony between our confession and our action between our confession and and our action and he sorts us out here in several different ways again the end of chapter one he talks about not just being hearers of the word but doers and so he kind of sets the table here with, uh, yeah, you know, we need to be quick to hear the word. That's, that's important, but we can't just stop with hearing. We've got, to be, we've got to be doers, okay? And then he goes into the beginning of chapter 2, and he talks about um, the way that we love people, but not really the way that God loves, that we show partiality in our love. Beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes to you in your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over here or you sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? with which he has promised to those who love him. We should be harmonious in the way that we love. Okay? Um, the, uh, I don't want to say this. I think this exists everywhere. Um, but 
again, I, I've grown up here. Most of you have, have, have grown up here. It definitely exists in Holmes County and in East Holmes County. But it's what I call the good old boys club. You know what I mean when I say the good old boys club? The good old boys club is like you've got people who've got power, you've got people who've got influence, and it's I'll scratch your back and, and you scratch mine, and I'm going to give to you, and I'm going to love you, and I'm going to support you, but I know that you know, you're going to return the favor at some point. The good old boys club is a pagan kind of love. The good old boys club is, is the way that the world loves. This is what Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, and it's what James is saying here. And again, it, at the end of this little passage here in Matthew chapter 5, um, uh, Jesus actually closes it with talking about this word teleos. But listen, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward is what reward do you have? Listen, this is why I say the good old boys club is a pagan type of love. He says, do not even the tax collectors do the same? So you love people who can love you in return. It's not the way your heavenly father loves. He says, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles, the pagans, do the same. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, teleos, whole, in harmony. I don't care who it is and if they can ever pay you back, they get, you, you love them. And again, well, well who, who should I love? Like, like literally everybody, yes. This is the story of the good Samaritan. That, you know, the guy, the, the, the good old boy, the Pharisee asked Jesus, well, well who's my neighbor? Who should I love? Because you said, you know, you've got to love your neighbors yourself. Well, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus breaks out the story of the good Samaritan. Talks about, you know, this guy that's traveling down, and he doesn't know this guy from Adam laying alongside the road, and he loves him because he literally was laying in his path. That everybody that's in your path day to day, God's will, his desire for you, that your life would be harmonious and whole and beautiful to him, is that you love them. Whether you think they deserve it or not. Because you and I didn't deserve the love that God showed us. Amen? Still with me? Okay. All right, we'll keep going. Um, also, not just in regards to the way that we love, but again, wholeness and harmony um, in our uh, confession, in our action. Probably one of the passages that James is most famous for, the end of chapter 2 here, where he talks about uh, both faith and works working uh, working together, and really one being the fruit of the other. But James chapter 2, verse 14, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things that are needed for the body, what good is that? So also, listen, faith by itself, it, if it does not have works, is dead. Verse 18, someone will, will, will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. And again, this is the idea here, not just that there's three in one. He's not just talking about the Trinity, but that God is whole, that he's, that he's one. He's the opposite, again, of being double-minded or fractured. You believe that God is one, you do well. But even the demons believe that and they shudder. Did you know that demons have pretty good theology? You believe that God is one. Well, well, good, that's great. So do the demons. 
but their faith is not saving, obviously. Their faith is not in a way that transforms them. Their faith is not in something that they also love and leads to action. Verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. Again, completed there is that word teleos, whole. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 23 is important, okay? That it is only by grace through faith in Christ alone. But what he's saying here is that the faith that saves is always going, that is the root, and it's always going to lead to good fruit in our lives. This was at the heart of the debate of the Protestant Reformation back in the 1500s. Uh, Aaron, I don't know where you're at, whoever's running the, but can you throw up that quote? Um, now, th- let me explain this here. This is from uh, Canon 11 of the sixth session of the Council of Trent. I'm sure you guys all read that last night, just as some casual reading. Um, this is, this is the Roman Catholic Church responding to uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin um, and their confession that a man is saved by faith alone. That we're justified by, by faith alone in Christ. And they're getting all hung up on these works. But again, they don't believe that it's root and fruit. They believe that it's kind of like an equation. A little bit of faith, a little bit of works, and we... And we get in. And here's what the Catholic Church says in response to them. And then I'll tell you Calvin's response. But he says, here's what they say. They say, whosoever shall say that men are justified by the mere imputation of Christ's righteousness, which is, that's absolutely what we believe, or by the mere remission of sins exclusive of grace and charity, which is shed abroad in their hearts by the Holy Spirit and is inherent to them, or also that the grace by which we are justified is only the favor of God, says let him be anathema. Anathema means cursed. Like it's the strongest language for let them be damned. Okay, so if you, I know that's maybe some a little bit of our archaic language, but what he's saying is what, what the Roman Catholic Church is saying in that, uh, in that Council of Trent is that if you say that it's by faith alone, then you are to be damned. This was John Calvin's response. You can do the next slide. He replied to that. He said, I wish the reader to understand that as often as we mention faith alone in this question, we are not thinking of a dead faith which worketh not by love, but holding faith to be the only cause of justification. It is faith alone that justifies you. It's not 99% Christ's work, your faith in that, and 1% your work. It is all of Christ. It is therefore faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. John Calvin's getting me fired up. I'm ready to preach now. I'm going to say, read that again. It is therefore faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. Just as it is the heat alone of the sun which warms the earth, and yet in the sun it is not alone because it is constantly conjoined with light. It is faith alone that justifies us, but the faith that justifies us is never alone. It is root and it always produces fruit of works in our lives, always. And guys, it's important that you understand this because people all throughout history have gotten this wrong. Again, this was what the issue at the heart of the Protestant Reformation, that it is by faith alone and that everything else is Christ in us working to produce good fruit. It is fruit of the Spirit that now lives inside of us. There was a lot of people who literally gave their lives for this truth. And so we hold this to be very, very, very precious. 
Yet, what James is saying here is, is James would scoff, I believe, at a lot of our modern-day, lukewarm American Christianity that says, I believe in Jesus, and there's absolutely no change in your life. You are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. That if you receive Jesus Christ as Savior, you also receive him as Lord. It's all in one. And that when we understand that we are saved only by grace through faith in his shed blood, that it's not just believing like the demons believe where we give some sort of mental assent to it and we say, yes, check that box, I believe that's true. We see it and we love it. We see Jesus bloodied, hanging on the cross for us and we cannot help but respond by giving him all of our lives. Does that make sense? It's all because of Jesus. And it's all because of what he's done. And the faith that saves is not alone, but it produces, it produces good works in us. And James says, and he steps back and he looks at the right and he goes, he sees Christians even back then, just like now, that they check the box and they say the right things about Jesus, yet there's absolutely no transformation or even a desire for transformation in their life. And he goes, that's out of tune. That's not harmony. That's not teleos. That's off. And it needs to be, and it needs to be repented of. So next he talks about being whole <coughs> or harmonious in our words, in the things that we say. One of the most practical parts of the Bible that you will ever encounter. And again, I said that James is like uh, the Simon Cowell of biblical authors uh, because he uses very colorful language. Again, not in any way sinful language, but very colorful language. And here in chapter 3, you see James just kind of rapid fire, like rapid machine gun fire off word picture after word picture and metaphor after metaphor to, regard, uh, to uh, describe the way in which um, the words that we say and the God that we confess in uh, are not harmonious and they're not one. He says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder. Wherever the will of the pilot directs, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a fire. He's talking about bridles in the mouths of horses. He's talking about rudders on ships. And he talks about sparks causing great forest fires. And he says the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell itself. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And now he's going to flesh out specifically kind of what he's talking about because he's not just talking here about dropping four-letter words, although, you know, that's not good as well. I'm not advocating for that. But verse 9 Here's what we do with it. He's, with it, we, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. 
That's not, that's, that's not harmony. Something's off. When we sing praises in here or anytime on Sunday morning vertically to God, yet at the same time, the same member of our body is used to, to curse others, to speak ill of them, again, not just cuss words, but to gossip about, to tear them down. James says, that's not teleos. You're not whole. There's something wrong. And he presses this even more with a few more word pictures here. Verse 10, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. And then this is like a great understatement. <laughs> Brothers, these things ought not to be so. D verse 11, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? No, is the answer. Verse 12, can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? No. Can a grapevine produce figs? No. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. He's giving pictures here of things that would be contrary to nature. It, it, it would be contrary to nature to have a fig tree that produces olives or a grapevine that produces figs. We know that those things cannot be true. Yet, here's what he's saying. Our tongue is so evil that it is contrary to nature. That even though these things are not true in the natural world with figs and olives and grapes and fresh water and salt water and all this stuff, he's saying there's something wrong with us that we praise God and yet we speak evil of those who are made in his image and whom he died for. And see, again, James, it's on the outward, he, he's Again, just kind of slapping us upside of the head in all these practical ways, trying to wake us up. But if you think, just very specifically about your own life and just the sin of your own words, again, nothing else, but just the sin of your own words, um, you think about the evil. I think about the hurt and the pain that I have caused people that I love because of my words. You know what it makes me think? I need a savior. I need Jesus. And see, and in all this practicality here, we have this God who's not double-minded like we are, who's not fragmented and broken like we are. And James, through all these, again, looking at our life in all these practical ways, he wants to drive us back to the Savior. I, I want to be, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I want to say something, and, but you've got to understand the way in which I'm saying it, because, you, you know, you read the, the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, and they're churches, they're, they're believers, and some people in them are not believers. It's, it's kind of a mixed bag, just like it is today. Some people really know Jesus, some don't. And Jesus says some harsh things. I mean, he, he calls them out just like James is calling us out here. But he says, those whom I love, I reprove and I rebuke and I discipline because he loves them. And so he says, be earnest, be zealous and, 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 and repent. And so hear me, Jesus will, will say hard things to us, but guys, if we're his children, I want you to know this, God never speaks ill of you. Do you know that? Like when you, when you, when you sin, when you mess up, even when you're unfaithful, because he's unchanging, because he's not double-minded. 
mean, how many opportunities has he had throughout the course of my life to go, Holy Spirit, Jesus, do you see what Eric did again? Oh my gosh, unbelievable. He doesn't do that. He doesn't speak ill of me. He doesn't speak ill of you. He loves you. You know, at the beginning of Jesus' life, or I'm sorry, the beginning of his public ministry, he was on the earth about 30 years before he ever began his public ministry. And the first thing that happens is he gets baptized by John. And again, he wasn't being baptized for the same reasons that others were, um, for the sake of repentance and acknowledging outwardly that they needed a savior, that they needed to be died and risen again. But Jesus is doing it because he's identifying with these sinful people whose sin he was going to take upon himself. But before he ever preaches a sermon, before he casts out a demon, before he heals anybody, before he walks on water, before he breaks the loaves and the fishes, does anything like that, he comes up out of the water, the heavens part, the Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove, and his father speaks from heaven, and he said this, he says, this is my son. I am pleased with him. Before he did anything. And guys, this is not, this is not a stretch, this is theologically accurate. That for every one time that the, that the New Testament says that Christ lives in you, there are ten times that say that you are in Christ. See this little phrase over and over again. It's one of Paul's favorite, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And that if you have believed in Christ, God says the same of you. This is my son. This is my daughter. I am pleased with them. And the reason that that's so important is because if you don't know what your heavenly father says of you, you're never, if you don't know that he blesses you, you're never going to be able to bless others. And again, you look back here just quickly at the beginning of chapter 3 where he's talking about ships and bridles in the mouths of horses. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. And the reason I'm pointing this out and I want you to understand that we should bless with our tongue because God blesses us with his words and he cares for us is that so many of you, your life has been guided and directed by people that were supposed to love you, by people that were supposed to speak blessing over your life, and instead they've spoken curses. And I don't, by curse, I don't mean some sort of like, you know, witchcraft ceremony or something. I mean like, you're worthless. You're never going to amount to anything. If only you could be like so-and-so. Oh, you messed up again. Oh, and just... Your life has been guided by those words. And you need to hear this morning that there is a heavenly father that loves you and that cares for you and that is pleased with you if you just simply trust in what he's done for you. Amen? It's true. And out of that then, out of the wholeness of our God, we can, we can believe. Real quickly, I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm going to skip, go, go a little faster here and try to get try to get to the end. One, one more again. He wants us to be whole in the things that we love. Verse 4, and again, I don't need to do much more than just read this because again, he uses very strong graphic language. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you, that there's not harmony in the things that we love and the things that we desire? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your 
passions. Passions in verse 1, desire in verse 2. We covet verse 2. Again, passions in verse 3. Here's what he says. Here's the, here's the metaphor. Verse 4, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship, and again, not just acquaintance, but friendship back in the day was like, I mean, you invited somebody into your house, you invited them in to partake of your table. I mean, they were family to you. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity towards God? Saying there's not, there's not always harmony in the things that we love. And again, just so, I'm not making this up. I'm not trying to take this too far. I want you to see very clearly the word picture that he's using. Verse 4, you adulterous people, okay? But I'm just going to say it in a way that where hopefully you feel it a little bit. Is that if I am 99% faithful to Hannah, my wife, yet I love another just 1% of the time, I'm not a good husband, right? Like that's not, man, Eric, he's 99%. It's <laughs> great. No. It's wrong. And guys, our, we love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. And when we see these passions at work in us, and they are at work in all of us, causing us to love another, we say, Jesus, save me. Please help me. That's the answer. Not that we'll just do better, but that we cry out to God for mercy. This is what he says. As you go on here, in verse 5, or do you suppose that it is for no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he, he gives grace to the humble. What should we do? What should we do when we see these adulterous passions, these other loves in our soul for things other than God, for people other than God? Verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. There it is again. Double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Is James so much wants us to constantly be examining our own hearts by the things that we see in our lives. He points to the fruit so that we would go deeper and take a look at the root of where these things are coming from. And the answer, as he says here in verse 8, really sums up everything, is that how do we get, how do we overcome these things? whether it's the tongue or whether it's our actions or whether it's the way that we love or whether it's passions in our heart that should, not, that should not be there and are not congruent with what God has done for us, we draw near to God. This is why, guys, the gospel is not just a starting point, but it's the starting point, it, it's the beginning, it's the middle, and it's the end. That again and again and again, you have to draw near to Jesus because he's the only one He's the only one that can save you. And finally, <coughs> something very practical here. I'm just going to skip to the end of chapter 5. And I know chapter 5 was not part of your reading this past week, but I just couldn't help myself. It really messed with me to just end in chapter 4. So um, 
I'm going to go all the way to chapter 5. This, will, this is part of the on the daily reading plan for uh, tomorrow, if you guys are, are, are reading along. But just one more area that James wants us to be harmonious in or congruent, haptelius, and that is in our prayer life, in our, in, in our prayers. Is, uh, he talks about prayer here and persevering in it and, and um, even praying for people who are, who are sick, calling the elders to anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Um, then verse 16, but I think he is talking about physical healing. I also think he's talking about healing of our souls. It comes from sin. Verse 16, chapter 5, therefore confess your sins to one another, pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And then some of my favorite verses in all the Bible, verse 17, I love this. He throws back to an Old Testament prophet, Elijah. <clears throat> and he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. That's important, right? Because many times we read about Elijah or Moses or David, and we think, well, yeah, but that was David. Well, yeah, but that was, that was Elijah. And that, was, that was Moses. That was, that was Samson. That was Gideon. He goes, no, no, no. Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. And he prayed fervently, intensely. It's the idea of getting hot that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its, bore its fruit. And what James ends with here for his people, and I think this is a good place for us to end, and I want to do something practical here as we kind of wrap up our time together today too with prayer. But James ends this, this letter talking to them about the importance of being whole, having harmony in our prayer life. And again, I could have maybe done just a whole sermon on this, but, but guys, I feel like this is just maybe just a word for somebody this morning. Is it, I, I don't fully understand it, but one of the things that the Bible is clear on is that God knows what we need before we need it, Right? Like he knows, he's, he's sovereign. And yet what the Bible is also absolutely clear on is that we need to pray and we need to ask for it. And when we ask him, it doesn't always just happen like that. But we need to be fervent in it. We need to persevere in it. And the story of Elijah, if you want to go back and read it, it's in 1 Kings chapters 17 and 18 primarily, the verses that he's referencing here. But he talks about how there was, a, there, it was during one of the most wicked times in Israel's history. And uh, it was Ahab and Jezebel. Anybody heard of Jezebel? Most people don't name their daughters Jezebel because she's Jezebel. Anyway, um, it was a very wicked time. They were known for their wickedness, both of them. And Elijah lived during this time. And he changed the course of that nation. He changed that wicked season of an entire nation, brought revival to it by praying fervently, first of all, that it would not rain, that there would be a drought. And then there was no rain for three and a half years. And if you can imagine, again, in an agrarian society, and most of them are farmers, and they've got crops and stuff like that, how no rain for three and a half years would pretty much do you in. And so everybody began to get very desperate. 
And then at the end of three and a half, at the end of three and a half years, um, God tells Elijah in First Kings chapter 18 to pray for rain. And so Elijah does it again. And in between there, I won't go into the whole thing, but this is kind of like a, if you get, grew up in like Sunday school or kids' church, I know our kids have talked about this, but you know, it's, the, it's that classic showdown with Elijah and the prophets of Baal and um, you know, they're dancing around all day trying to get their God to light the altar that they built and nothing happens and Elijah's mocking them and uh, at one point he literally, again, I, this is why I think it's okay to talk a little bit of trash sometimes, although that probably contradicts what I just said about the tongue, but, um, but Elijah, but Elijah actually, he, he kind of talks some trash to the prophets of Baal, like they're dancing around and in, in, in the Hebrew it's literally goes, maybe your God went to the bathroom. <laughs> He's kind of mocking, but nothing happens. And then you guys know the story, he builds his altar, they soak it with water three times over, and then God sends down fire from heaven, and he lights, and he, and he lights the altar, and, and the nation turns. And then after that, um, the end of chapter 18 is when Elisha gets down, and it says he put his head between his knees, gets down on his knees, and he prays fervently. Now God had told him that he wanted it to rain, Okay? God said, it's, he's going to rain. But he gets down once and he prays. And he tells his assistant to go check if there's any clouds on the horizon. Nope, no clouds. And so he gets down, puts his head between his knees again. He prays that it would rain. And tells his servant to go look on the horizon. Nope, no rain. He does this seven times. He doesn't give up. Until he sees, finally the seventh time, his servant comes back and he says, I see a small cloud forming over the sea. It's the size of a man's hand, way off in the distance. And Elijah says, run, go. It's going to pour. It's going to pour. But Elijah, my, my point here, guys, is that, and this is James' point, is that Elijah persevered. He was harmonious in praying the will of God into his life and sometimes we give up in prayer and and my point is simply is that I think one of the things God wants for us as a church especially um, just just in this season again he's always wanted this but but I want to let you guys know something and and it's totally again I, I, I always struggle to talk about it because I never wanted to come across as condemning in any way. But I want to just kind of get us up into the big picture of what we're ultimately after here at Mercy Hill, okay? Is that for the last two and a half years almost, we've prayed two times a week, a small group of us, uh, and this is open to anybody, at 5 a.m. on Tuesdays and Thursday mornings for about an hour and a half. We pray for here for, for an hour every Sunday morning. We pray um, this Wednesday, and Conrad announced it at the beginning, uh, if you guys can come, we're going to pray this Wednesday night, the first Wednesday of every month, we have prayer up at the hub. And here's what we're praying for ultimately. We pray for a lot of specifics and in and outs, but here's what we're praying for, that God would send rain. And that he would do what only he can do. And again, I don't understand it because I know that God wants to save people. Like, unequivocally, he, he wants to save people. And I ask him to save people. And I know you guys ask him to, to save people. But there's more people that need saved. And he hasn't done it all just like that. 
But if our lives are to be mature, if they're to have harmony, if they're to have teleos, then guys, we have to keep praying. Amen? And I want you to know this morning that if you're in the midst of a season where you've, uh, you've put your head between your knees and you're on like time two or three or four and you're like, God, you told me, I felt like I was supposed to pray this. What do you want me to do? Just keep doing it. <laughs> Just keep doing it. Because God answers prayer. And uh, he wants to answer prayer in your life and he also wants to, wants to answer prayer um, just in our area and for our region. Worship team, you can come up and we're going we're gonna to close. <clears throat> Here's what I want to do, okay? Uh, <clears throat> again, I'm just such a stickler for doing something after the word of God is preached that we respond in some way. That's, that's part of the reason why we have communion every week. It's not the only reason. But I just feel like we, you have to respond in some way. And hopefully, again, you're responding on Monday through Saturday as well. But, but we're not doing communion today. So we're in this, this different space. But I, I want us all to get up. So, everybody get up. And, uh, and I want us to form a big circle around the outside. Can you do that? You may move now. Form a big circle around the outside. You guys got two songs? Okay. I want, uh, 